Western telecommunications, robotics, green technology. And these companies cannot compete with Chinese companies on a level playing field. They're trying to box them in. The West doesn't mind if China just gives its labor to Western companies. They don't want China to advance technologically. That's Vijay Prashad, and this is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamyan. This edition of AR features Vijay Prashad on China, the U.S., and the new Cold War. Part two of a special two-part program. China is one of the oldest cultures in the world with a rich history. The ancient Middle Kingdom is today's People's Republic of China. For several centuries prior to the creation of the PRC, China endured invasions, occupations, civil wars, and famine. Today, it is an economic powerhouse. Its influence is expanding across the globe. However, relations between Washington and Beijing have become increasingly confrontational. Secretary of State Blinken warned China not to upset what he called the rules-based order. And then he added, anyone who poses a challenge to that order, we're going to stand up and defend it. He noted that China is acting more aggressively abroad, while at the same time, the Pentagon sends its warships off of China's coast and China is surrounded by American military bases. Washington sees China as a threat to its hegemony. A new Cold War is brewing. Our guest today is Vijay Prashad. He's a historian, journalist, and educator. He's director of the Tri-Continental Institute for Social Research based in Argentina, Brazil, South Africa, and India. He's also editor of Leftward Books based in New Delhi. He's the author of many books, including Washington Bullets, A History of the CIA Coups and Assassinations. I spoke with him on April 22nd. He was in Santiago, Chile. Well, talk about uh, the leader of uh, China, Xi. What is the source of, of his power and, and how stable is he? The Chinese system is an interesting system. Um, there, there is an old idea that goes back to, I guess, the 17th and 18th century that you know becomes known to us through that phrase, oriental despotism. This idea that there's Kublai Khan in China or, you know, there are these great leaders sitting on top of a throne and they dominate the whole country, you know, um, the great despot uh, and so on. Um, this is very much not the truth of the situation. I've, I've been to China many, many times, interacted with people at many different levels. Um, I should say I, I work for a Chinese institute as well, partly. Um, but I'm not saying the things I'm saying, guys, because I work for that institute. Um, at any rate, you see the nature of the Chinese political system. It's organized at the neighborhood level. It's organized at the regional level. In fact, the provinces are the most important political unit in China. So if you have Hubei province, for instance, uh, the provincial leadership has a lot of power. In fact, uh, at, it's from the provincial level that they create 
relations with countries they have their own diplomatic relations with other countries and so on so it's a there's that there's that form of let's call it civilian power then there's the military power there is you know who runs the people's liberation army and that whole apparatus then who runs the state institutions central state institutions that whole apparatus it's a very complicated multidimensional scene there there is a balance of power it's just not in the same way as executive legislature judiciary you know there's military there's provincial power there's the state institutions there's the communist party several different sections of power very rarely do you have one person able to be dominant over all of them um, mr shi is a very gifted political person because he has been around for a long time most of these people who come to the role of premier of the country president of the country they have had experience being provincial leaders so they've had that experience they've maybe been a party secretary in a province so they've had party communist party experience several times they go in and they have people liberation army experience they become administrators of something or the other if you look at his career his his career is very well balanced he's had opportunity to be in all the different power centers of of chinese uh, politics but the thing that makes his um position fairly interesting is when he first uh, came to his role i thought well he is going to be largely an institutional person an organizational person you know a, a kind of communist party apachenic kind of person strengthening the party and so on turns out that's not who he how he has has governed in the last period he has pivoted the country to take great cognizance of the inequalities uh, of the rush to build social wealth he pushed this um, anti poverty agenda that was his main agenda linked to that was the growth of marxist schools to teach marxism to young people which had eroded well xi jinping wanted to strengthen that so there's a lot of different ways in which he has innovated to push the country in a leftward direction and that's interesting to me i was there at the 40th anniversary of the 1978 reforms it's not like they said that look the reform era was a bad thing the reform era was important because again you can't socialize poverty but you got to pivot now back to socialization of you know the goods so she has moved the country in that direction now you asked a difficult question you said what's the source of stability I mean that's a complicated question David you can't you can't it's too soon to tell <laughs> how communistic is chinese communism it's been called more of a state capitalist system i'm generally not in favor of this kind of uh, discussion meaning when people say oh it's state capitalism it's a return to capitalism things like that people who make those kind of judgments don't grip what it means to build socialism in a poor country they have a kind of a abstract model of what is socialism it's the question when when i ask you well can you socialize poverty look you've made a communist revolution in the tsarist empire it's a totally poor area of the world you know again it's not the german revolution where you need not have 
gone back to building social wealth. You already have industrial plants in the Ruhr Valley and so on. In, in Russia, you barely had things, some in St. Petersburg, some outside Moscow. You had the Donbass region, you know, with some industrial plant, but nothing compared to what will be built by the Soviet Union. So then the young Soviet Republic has to innovate. They do things like basically letting some capitalistic development take place and, and all kinds of innovations because you cannot socialize poverty. That's the basic point. So if you look at China for what it has done and for not for what it doesn't look like, you know, people who say it's state capitalists, they're judging it by something else. They are trying to create social wealth in order to create socialism. And so you're going to go, as Engels said, you'll zig and zag. You'll zig towards greater wealth inequality. You'll have to zag back to socializing the social wealth. And that's what we see in China since 1978. There's a lot of zig and zag happening. You know, there's Deng saying, let's go in this way. Uh, Hu Jintao saying, we're going this way and so on. And I'm using the names of people, but it's not really the people. It's that these are periods of Chinese development. And it's largely in my mind, it's, it's an experiment with socialism in a poor country. You know, uh, you can't build socialism uh, unless you've built wealth. That's the bottom line. Talk about uh, China's uh, international economic reach, uh, the Belt and Road Initiative. What's your assessment of that? And how extensive is it? I know from Pakistan to Latin America to Africa. China had economic model before the world credit crisis, the economic crisis of 2007-2008. It had an economic model where China was producing enormous number of goods, the manufacture of the world, and selling these goods to northern Atlantic states, mostly the United States. Um, the United States was giving credit to its population to go out there and buy Chinese goods. You know, that's how the economy was working. The uh, chief economist at the IMF called it a satanic embrace. Well, after the world financial crisis, there was a lot of introspection in China because the feeling was, look, you can't rely on this market for, for the goods. And by the way, this is not a trivial issue, uh, David. When you walk into a suburban U.S. home and you see the size of the refrigerator, you know, I used to joke sometimes the size of the refrigerator in some of these Cleveland suburbs is the size of my mother's apartment, you know, before she died in September, you know, her apartment was the size of their refrigerator, you know, enormous refrigerators. China was making goods for the US market. You can't suddenly sell those refrigerators in Pakistan. Only a few very elite homes can sustain an American sized refrigerator. You need smaller things. So to pivot away from making and selling to the U.S. market meant a lot for the, that the Chinese had to do. They had to change not only where they were selling, but what they were selling. The Belt and Road essentially starts as an alternative to the U.S. and European market. And the Chinese had, I think, two different um, theories of this. One was transfer payments for the population, abolish poverty, create a domestic market for your goods. So you don't have to export them to the West, improve the standard of living of people. That was one road. And that's what essentially has happened. The second road was export to the South, you know, help develop the South in a way, not only for itself, but also they will buy goods from your uh, from your production. And so that's the genesis of, of the early Belt and Road, the BRI. And it is totally extensive. Now, 
it's interesting. Uh, Belt and Road is a big project in South America, in Africa, in Southern Asia, in Southeast Asia, and so on. Well, fascinating. Uh, as soon as Chinese capital enters into Africa, suddenly the Europeans say this is imperialism. And I, I found that just like, guys, you know, you are the original imperialists. Like, what are you talking about? Secondly, they started to put out this thing about debt trap diplomacy. In other words, that the Chinese were building like a port, um, getting the country to go into debt and then seizing the asset. Now, let's pause for a minute, David, because we've had already 70 years of International Monetary Fund debt trap diplomacy, where the IMF came in, said that, oh, you want a loan from us, so you have to change your entire budgeting procedure. You have to stop subsidizing healthcare. You have to stop subsidizing education and so on. You know, the IMF structural adjustment policy was hideous. It has put countries into permanent debt. $11 trillion is the total external debt of developing countries. It's not to China. It's to Western commercial and uh, private and uh, government debt. That's what the $11 trillion is largely towards. The Atlantic magazine of all places ran a, an article saying this accusation that China is doing debt trap diplomacy is nonsense. And I'll give you a, a particular example. In Ecuador, when Rafael Correa was the president, the Chinese came and provided funding for a number of infrastructure projects that were much needed by the Ecuadorian uh, people. And when the pandemic struck, the Chinese government just said, hey, you don't have to debt service. You don't have to pay service on the debt. We're just going to postpone it indefinitely. This is one of the most generous terms I've seen from international finance in the middle of this pandemic. By the way, most private capital in Europe has refused to renegotiate the terms of 11 trillion of debt. Many developing countries ended up paying $4 trillion last year in debt servicing payments combined, all of them, last year. But the Chinese said you don't have to pay. So this accusation, debt trap diplomacy is not there. The Chinese have two different theories of uh, investment, three different theories. Sorry, I forgot the most important. One is called patient capital, where you lend money to build a port, say in El Salvador, and you don't expect the rate of return to come immediately. It'll come at some point, but you you're lending money to build the port there. That's important to you. So that's patient capital. You're not hurrying to recoup the investment. Second is a political capital. You're investing in a country that has close political ties to you. You know, perhaps it's when China says, OK, we'll invest something in Cuba. We have a political relationship with the Cubans. We'll invest. We don't care about the investment cost. You know, we'll eat that. Uh, that's political capital. But the third is interesting, and that's the Belt and Road kind of approach. We'll build a port so that we can then bring our goods into the country. You know, they have a, a commercial reason for that. Well, but they are not saying only Chinese goods can come in. Other goods can come in. You know, it's not like an Indian ship can't dock in that port. But it also facilitates the BRI. So these are their approaches to this kind of inf infrastructural development. They, they've openly said that we are not interested in only investing in countries and telling them to become pro-China. Yes, there is actually one political stipulation. Many of these countries have to, if they're going to take um, capital from China, have to no longer uh, recognize Taiwan in the United Nations and have to recognize China. That's a political stipulation, but that's also for legal paperwork. How can I, as the Chinese government, sign a deal with you if you don't recognize me? 
So that happens a lot. But they are not saying we'll only give money to a left government. After all, they are investing in Brazil. There's a government there led by Jair Bolsonaro, whose son says racist things on Twitter about China all the time. And yet China continues to have a relationship with them. There's no political litmus test. That being said, the idea of political capital is also there. Countries are invested in where there's no expectation of an immediate rate of return. Pakistan, for instance, there's no expectation of an immediate rate of return. The Pakistani government cannot pay China back at all, you know, because they have a political linkage. Uh, which is going to endure. Well, Washington and its minions in the media have been hyping China as a danger, uh, citing threats to Taiwan, China's building military bases on islands in the South China Sea. The hypocrisy here is kind of stunning. The Chinese military has one aircraft carrier. The U.S. has 11. U.S. military expenditure is, of course, number one in the world and way exceeds China. U.S. bases surround China. Uh, There's a new development called the Quad Group. Do you see that as being directed toward China? That's a a group involving Australia, Japan, uh, the United States, and India. Tricontinental will release a report on militarization of the African continent. It's an interesting report because, again, if you travel in Africa, people will say, well, you know, Chinese, the Chinese colonialism and so on. Um, China has two military bases in Africa. It's true. One is in Djibouti. One is in Somalia. They are both port bases. Why does China have a military base in Africa? What's the game? Uh, About 10 years ago, the United Nations passed a resolution against piracy. And they called for an international mission against piracy in the Horn of Africa region, the Gulf of Aden, the shipping lanes for oil and so on. Now, there's something tragic in this story because this story is about the destruction of Somali fishing as a consequence of big fish trawlers that come from multinational corporations. These trawlers have been eating into the coastline of East Africa and the Horn of Africa. So many of the old Somali fisher people became pirates. You know, that's the story of what happened. You remember the whole thing about the Somali pirates. It became suddenly a big flashpoint. So the UN created an anti-piracy force. China participated and for that reason has these bases in Djibouti and in Somalia. They are to support the UN piracy mission. Meanwhile, in the 55 countries on the African continent, in over 20 countries, the United States has military bases. In the country of Niger, in the town of Agadez, the US has one of the world's largest drone bases, which when you see it, David, it is stunning. I want to tell you a little bit about Agadez, just to give you a sense of what we're talking about here. The African continent is geographically just a remarkable, stunning place. Uh, At the very top, on the rim of North Africa, uh, there's the coastline with the Mediterranean, but just below the coastline, less than in some countries, less than half an hour, an hour drive away from the coast, you hit the beginning of the Sahara Desert. There's the long Sahara Desert that will go in Libya, for instance, just south of Tripoli, all the way down into Niger. And then underneath the Sahara is the Sahel region, which is beautiful, lush in many ways, depending on the time of the year. The the Sahel region runs from Chad, Niger, Mali, Mauritania, and out into Western Sahara. It's that belt. Well, 
fascinatingly, the French and the United States government have militarized that whole belt for different reasons. In Niger, large country, there's Arlit and Agadez, two cities. Agadez has this enormous U.S. drone base, supposedly to track drug movements. Now, it's true that cocaine movement from South America to North America has started to run through Africa. At any rate, they are monitoring cocaine movements a little bit. But the real movement that's taking place is there is massive migration coming from West Africa across the Sahel, across the Sahara, um, into the Mediterranean region. And this Agadez base, in my opinion, does more to so-called deter the movement of migrants coming northward than anything else. Because that's what the drones seem to me searching for, is migrant caravans. Just north of Agadez in Arlit, you, you remember the story of yellow cake uranium and Niger? Well, the town of Arlit is where yellow cake uranium is produced. Most of it is. That town produces, I think, something like a third of French energy consumption. That town is garrisoned by the French military. And also there are American troops there. Now, there is militarization by the Europeans and the U.S. right across the African continent. But nobody knows about it. I mean, I don't think people know that in Agadez, the U.S. has one of the largest drone bases in the world. When a few U.S. Uh, soldier special forces were killed in an engagement at the Mali-Niger uh, border, in the U.S. Foreign, whatever it is, Affairs Committee of the Senate, senators said we didn't know we had troops there. I mean, you're in the Armed Services Committee. How did you not know you have built a base which can be seen from Google Earth? I don't know who they were fibbing to or whether they really didn't know. There's a base. You can see it. It's right there. Okay, let's think about this. There is this militarization on the African continent. Then let's go further south. There is the old colonial base in Diego Garcia, um, which the United States is still sitting on. Then come peel out in towards Japan. In Okinawa, there's a base where the Japanese people of Okinawa wanted the U.S. to leave that base. These are part of the over 800 bases the United States has around the world. Many of these interestingly encircle Eurasia, Russia and China. Um, th there's been there's a geopolitical game afoot, which is very disturbing to people in Moscow and Beijing. They feel garroted by these bases. In the middle of all this, U.S. is amping up rhetoric against China. In the middle of all this, they revive a platform called the Quad, Quadrilateral Security Arrangement. Quad includes four countries, Japan, which has a historic relationship to the United States since the U.S. occupation of Japan after World War II, Australia, which is part of the Five Eyes Intelligence Network, which includes Great Britain, New Zealand, you know, United States, so on. Um, they have a very close link with the U.S. intelligence agencies. United States uses their ports routinely for military vessels and so on. Um, then they have India in there. India, until 1991, was more closer to the USSR after the collapse of the USSR has essentially become a subordinate ally of the United States. So these three countries, Japan, uh, Australia and uh, India, with the U.S. form the Quad. During the Trump administration, Trump put a lot of emphasis on strengthening the Quad as part of his pressure against China. They were quite blatant about that. In fact, they changed the Pacific Command, U.S. Pacific Command, 
you know, the United States military is organized on these commands, Southern Command, Central Command, known as CENTCOM, and Pacific Command. During Trump's period, they changed the name to Indo-Pacific Command. So you had the Indo-Pacific Command now led by Admiral Philip Davidson, and you have this quad, all of it, why would you even say maybe, perhaps, could be about China? They explicitly say that they are there to encircle and block China. With these navies of these countries, they run extraordinary provocative um, naval exercises called freedom of navigation uh, exercises, where the U.S. ships will enter Chinese waters, or at least contested waters, and, and try to provoke an incident. It's an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. Rather than come to the table and say, let's talk about maritime islands, let's talk about the issues at stake here, the United States with the Quad are provoking the Chinese into all kinds of minor conflicts which can escalate, you know, and I'm, I'm very worried about these sorts of freedom of navigation things. So there is this enormous military capacity that the U.S. has, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in, in Southern Asia, whether it's in the Pacific Rim. Then it has created this quite belligerent formation called the Quad, uh, puts pressure on, on China. For what reason? To what end? And that's why I earlier wanted to talk about, you know, tech companies and so on. Because, you see, we have an image, David, tech companies are liberal. So why is it when Tim Cook, head of Apple, sat down with Donald Trump, why is it in the middle of Trump's anti-China period, why is it that Cook didn't say, look, Apple things are made by Shen in Shenzhen by Foxconn. You know, why don't we cool it a little on the anti-China rhetoric? No, Cook was all in favor of the war on China, all in favor, because they would prefer short term losses to Apple in order to prevent Apple having a real competitor in the manner of Huawei and other companies. So that's the danger of these things like the quad or the base structures. They are used for political and economic ends, not for the American people, not for the people of the U.S., but for U.S.-based multinationals. Now, China is doing an end run around U.S. policy vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Iran. It just signed a $400 billion economic deal with Iran in return for oil. Let's go back to the Belt and Road. The Belt and Road Initiative literally runs along the old Silk Road. It goes from Beijing, as it were, all the way out to, you know, what used to be the Ottoman Empire, now Turkey. Um, in fact, you can ride a train from Beijing and go pretty much to Europe. You can come into Milan Central Station. Um, this Belt and Road Initiative runs through Western China, Xinjiang province, into Afghanistan, through Central Asia, across Iran, across Iraq, up into uh, Turkey, to Van. Lake Van, and then across the length of Turkey. Uh, so Iran has played an incredibly important role for China's long-term thinking. And the Iranians are smart, by the way, because they've also had other, you know, irons in the fire. Uh, when China built a port alongside Pakistan at Gwadar in Baluchistan, the Iranians partnered with the Indians to build a port a few hundred kilometers away uh, to the west of Gwadar. That's an India-Iran port. So the Iranians are also very intelligent. They create alliances here, there and everywhere. But China has played a very important role. When you arrive in Tehran, for instance, before the pandemic, 
and you look at all the construction sites, the cranes all have Chinese writing on it, David. I mean, Chinese capital investment in Tehran, at least, I don't know the rest of the country, is quite considerable. And the overall capital investment of the Chinese is high. Chinese help uh, participate in building the part of the railroad and so on. So China understands, I believe, and Iran understands that this link is not just about going around the U.S. sanctions. In other words, there's a short term problem. How to deal with the way in which the United States is trying to sink Iran, to force Iran to capitulate to whatever, you know, maybe to surrender to Israel is, is seems like the end game. I don't know exactly what the U.S. government wants Iran to do, frankly, David. I mean, do they want the government to fall? Will that satisfy them? I'm not sure because Javed Zarif has said many times, we have accommodated you in the nuclear deal. What is it that you want us to do, you know, to stop a nuclear power process? Is that what you want? I mean, what do you want or the government to just surrender or something? So the, there's a short term problem and the, the Chinese have been looking for a short term problem around U.S. sanctions. But the longer term issue is building that Belt and Road. And it's very interesting as U.S. troops finally withdraw from Afghanistan, the last 2,500 troops, what will Kabul do vis-a-vis -vis the Chinese? And will the Chinese, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, be able to broker a deal with the Taliban? I'm interested to see that because in the talks that were held in Qatar, which the Turks were involved with, the United Nations, Zalmay Khalilzad on behalf of the U.S. and so on, and the different factions. Although I must say that the Kabul government wasn't so keen on those talks in Qatar. It was mainly the U.S. talking to the Taliban. But at any rate, what happens when the U.S. pulls out by September 11th? Where will the Chinese fall in this? Will Chinese send a high-level delegation to Kabul? Will they invite the Taliban leadership to meet with them um, in, in China? What's going to happen? Because, you see, Afghanistan is going to be important for the Belt and Road and also... In eastern Afghanistan, there is a very large copper mine, which the Chinese had taken a concession of right after the fall of the Taliban government. And that copper mine has been sitting idle. So the Chinese have investments in Afghanistan. I'm very interested to see, David. We don't know exactly what will happen. The United States says we're leaving on September 11th. Okay, you'll pull your 2,500 troops. Now... Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan, who in really in many ways is the mayor of Kabul, and that too not really the mayor of all of Kabul, but part of Kabul. Recently, you will remember the name Gulbuddin Hekmatyar. But Gulbuddin Hekmatyar, that real scourge of the Afghan people, is back in town, made an alliance with Ashraf Ghani. He is a man of changing positions leader of Hezbollah Islami. Hekmatyar is now lined up with Ashraf Ghani against the Taliban. What will happen? The parliamentary speaker has just warned of civil war again in Afghanistan. So what role will the Chinese play here? I'm very interested in that because this deal with Iran, in a way, is a chessboard move. You make the deal with Iran, you settle that side of Afghanistan, You've got big problems in Xinjiang, which you have to settle. There's a lot of pressure on what's happening in Xinjiang. And then eventually what happens in Afghanistan, the Belt and Road in that flank of Asia is dead and gone. If there's no solution to the problem in Afghanistan, if there's a major government change in Iran, and if there is 
serious unrest in Xinjiang province. It will be very hard to sustain a Belt and Road. So these three pieces, and we've talked, I think now all three of them, are key to the short-term and medium-term goals of, of the Belt and Road Initiative. That's Vijay Prashad on China, the U.S., and the new Cold War. Part two of a special two-part program. This is Independent Alternative Radio. Stay tuned at the end to learn how you can get CDs, MP3s, PDFs of this program, and for Vijay Prashad's book, Washington Bullets, The CIA Coups and Assassinations. Our website, alternativeradio.org. Now, in Washington Bullets, as well as an earlier book you wrote, The Darker Nations, A People's History of the Third World, you talk about a U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, specifically uh, Operation Cyclone. Explain what that is. Yeah, so um, many years ago, <laughs> I'm, I, I'm laughing because this comes to a meeting I had with a um, with a U.S. Uh, CIA guy in Cambridge, Massachusetts, whose name is Chuck Cogan. Um, Chuck Cogan was the director of operations in that part of Asia uh, during the key period of Operation Cyclone. So I had in, been interested in the fact that uh, a U.S. ambassador was killed in Afghanistan in 1979. Um, his name is Adolf Dubs, uh, first U.S. sitting U.S. ambassador to be assassinated. Um, I've often wanted to write a book, and if I had ever been able to do this, I would have called it The Assassination of Adolf, of Ambassador Adolf Dubs and the Origin of the War on Terror. See, what is interesting about Dubs is, firstly, he's the U.S. ambassador, and nobody remembers this assassination. You know, it's not written about much. So I started to talk to people in Afghan intelligence, British intelligence, U.S. intelligence, asking them who killed Dubs. Honestly, if I could, you know, open that drawer, I can show you. I have like a stack of about four or five feet of information on the Dubs assassination or my notes and so on. Never been able to write the book. Chuck Cogan told me, uh, don't touch this story. It'll get you in trouble. Uh, a man I met from British intelligence told me, this is for you. This is this story is bad for your health, he told me. Um, okay, guys, thanks. Message received. But the fact is, I can't get any information because nobody talks about it. Dubs was sent to Afghanistan because he was a Soviet expert. And he was sent there after the People's Democratic uh, you know, uh, Republic was formed, after the, the communists took power in August of 1978. The United States government thought, well, let's send a Soviet expert who's been to Moscow, understands the communists to go and see what's going on. And Dubs was reporting, saying, look, these are actually not basically um, they are not operating on behalf of the USSR. They don't have ambitions, you know, to allow uh, to go and invade Iran and so on. Remember, this is before the Iranian revolution. This is August 78. Uh, they don't have ambitions to lead a revolution through Iran to the Gulf Arab states and take over the oil. Dubs said these are essentially left-wing nationalists. Um, and their program is not a bad one. Anahita Ratebzar, one of the ministers in that government who I had interviewed much later, had pushed a women's right agenda, which Afghanistan would be happy to look at today. You know, for instance, uh, right to divorce, right to inheritance for girls and so on. They just... By fiat said that's what's going to happen. And there was some power. They, they would have been able to drive an agenda, except 
that the two flanks of the communists began to fight amongst each other. That's the Khalk and Parcham factions were fighting against each other. Um, at any rate, Dubs was there sending these messages. And then miraculously, one day he's kidnapped. Now, who kidnaps him? Later, they say it's Shiite Maoists. Shiite Maoists? <laughs> what kind of species of being is this? He's kidnapped. He's taken to a hotel in Kabul. And in the rescue operation, everybody is killed. The kidnappers and dubs. Nobody survives that. Um, very mysterious. So, of course, I'm... And then right after that, Operation Cyclone begins. What is Operation Cyclone? Massive infusion of covert U.S. aid coming through the Pakistani government, which by then was run by a Islamist dictator, military dictator by the name of Ziaul Haq. Um, Ziaul Haq essentially converted... Um, Pakistani military establishment into a doormat for U.S. power in Afghanistan. The inter-services group ISI is basically created for the Afghan war. And Cyclone, which is a terrible name for this because it was cyclonic for Afghanistan, comes in to basically put pressure on the, um, on the left-wing government and to draw the Soviet army across the Amu Darya into Afghanistan because Brzezinski... Carter, President Jimmy Carter's assistant, Brzezinski, said, we want to trap the Russian bear in Afghanistan. We want a bear trap. He said Afghanistan should be the Soviets' Vietnam. Um, that was his general orientation. And they supported people like Gulbuddin Hekmatyar in Kabul. Hekmatyar, Buruddin Rabani, horrible men, frankly, um, David, horrible men. Hekmatyar, he made his reputation throwing acid in girls' faces at Kabul University. You know, this is the kind of fellow that the U.S. government backed. Horrible people. You compare, put Gulbuddin Hekmatyar in a, one a cabin and put Anahita Ratebzad in the other. I would pick her any day. Human being compared to him. Monstrous behavior. I'm back in Kabul now. Ratebzad, unfortunately, dead. Um, so Operation Cyclone essentially was a massive infusion of U.S. funds covertly. Some of this money raised from private hands. You know, that uh, film that was made with Tom Hanks tells the story of this. Um, as I've forgotten the name, Uncle Charlie's War or something like that. Um, and what, what you then get is you get the Soviets after great deliberation. My God, when I first read the Politburo minutes of whether they should enter Afghanistan, they're like, no, we don't want to go. We don't understand what's happening. We don't want to go. We don't want to go. And people are saying, no, the government in Kabul is begging us to come because they can't deal with um, this Operation Cyclone. And eventually the Soviets crossed the Amu Darya. My mind, a great error at the time, strategic error in many different ways. But it seems that they felt they had no choice. They enter in. It is a catastrophe. Um, and that then leads us into chaos. But why I wanted to call my book The Assassination of Ambassador Adolf Dubbs and the Origins of the War on Terror is that had Dubbs prevailed, had Operation Cyclone not taken place, despite the fact that the Parcham and Khalk factions of the communist groups were fighting each other, perhaps Afghanistan could have moved in a more progressive direction. You see, in fact, we can even go before. Had the 64 revolution allowed to have a kind of liberal period, 
good good things have come out of it it's not true what people believe that afghanistan is some medieval country that's fated to go back to its this is a very offensive uh, interpretation afghanistan through the 20th century has tried to advance the goals of democracy of good feeling of peoples and so on and every time they've attempted it they've been pushed down this goes back to the 19th century i mean david think how many times the british invaded afghanistan in the 19th century how much they intervened in right up to 1919 you know at the time of of the the revolutionary period of 1918 1919 british intervene again and again they backed the worst people in afghanistan the imperialists always backed the worst people in afghanistan the worst and then they'd make the better lot uh seem terrible through this kind of information war well what ensued in afghanistan after the soviet invasion i remember it was on the christmas day 1979 was of course the launching of this international jihad against atheistic soviet communists and you had bankrolled by saudi arabia trained by pakistan these jihadis a, a massive us infusion of dollars and weapons and incidentally the recruitment of a certain saudi named osama bin laden so actions have consequences is the point here and the afghan mujahideen who were called freedom fighters by president ronald reagan on many occasions uh they morphed into what is now the taliban let's put this in some context david because you said something very correctly Ronald Reagan and people around him called the Mujahideen freedom fighters including men like Gulbuddin Ekmatyar well known for barbaric treatment towards other human beings at the same time in 1986 Dick Cheney in the US Congress calls Nelson Mandela a terrorist so these people in the United States government at the same time call the people who become al qaeda freedom fighters and at that same time they are calling nelson mandela and the anti- brave anti apartheid fighters terrorists i mean why should why should we do any analysis of this you know when are these people going to be called to account dick cheney is still alive during his time as the vice president nobody ever asked him to account for the fact that in the congressional record he is he says nelson mandela is a terrorist when is he going to be called to account for that you know never never um and i think that's important because it's not just what he said about nelson mandela at the time but united states government was backing the declerk apartheid regime at the same time as it was backing the worst elements in pakistan and afghanistan to undermine a left project now again i'm not saying that the people's democratic republic in in afghanistan was some utopia you know they had their own problems but my god let's be clear the agenda they put forward if you go and you look at that agenda it was an extraordinarily progressive agenda universal education no more forced labor to landlords these are enormous advances democratizing village government not allowing village government to be just some male elders the loya jirga i mean why should we follow practices that no longer have place in the earth just because we have some fealty to 
you know, cultural, whatever. I don't respect a lot of things from my culture. I hate caste. I think caste is an abomination. There's no room for it. There's no, no reform of the caste system, David. You just have to junk it. It's totally against the norms of a democratic society. It must be junk. Loya, Jirga in Afghanistan, that has to be directly confronted. It's ridiculous. Men gather in the evening, sit around the tree and decide the fate of the rest of the community. That's an abomination to me. You know, universal adult franchise, democratized structures. That's what the communists were doing in Afghanistan. And they were then destroyed by whom? You know, I'm, I interviewed so many Afghan communists in Delhi who had taken refuge in Delhi in the 1990s. I talked to so many of them. These were decent, decent people who were trying to drive a decent agenda, but they had been totally demonized, totally demonized. They are the most sensitive, nice people. Now, of course, it's true that there are hideous things that happen. Of course, it's true. You know, you're managing a state. Uh, there are counter-revolutionary things happening. You're going to do things. Look, Che Guevara, after the revolution in Cuba, what do you think? Che Guevara just looked beautific in all his pictures? No, they had to go out there and tell people, either you come and uh, accept the terms of the new revolutionary government, or you go into exile, or you go to jail. I mean, there's no other place. You know, you have to accept that a new uh, you know, system has come. You can't be here working against our the people's system. And that's just a fact of the way in which revolutions take place. No revolution has taken place at its other side of it where there's nothing going to happen. I mean, if tomorrow I am entering the United States at JFK and they say, no, we don't allow you to enter, I'll, I understand why. I'll shake their hand and say, thanks a lot. You know, I understand why you don't want me. Or if, if I'm in the United States, they arrest me and say, we are deporting you. You are, you know, you say madcap things. I understand that. This is politics. When you were stopped at Delhi airport and told that we don't want you here anymore because you have certain views on Kashmir, I said, well, of course, I understand why that happened. It outrages me that somebody as decent and, and sensitive as David Barsamian is not allowed to enter India. That outrages me. But of course, I understand why it happens. You know, you have a position which is against the view of the Indian government. They don't want to hear it. They send you off. These things happen in life. Let's be frank and fair. We can have all kinds of ideas of freedom, but there's no such thing as pure freedom. It's a struggle. We're in the middle of a class struggle. That's what this is. You know, this is not a picnic. Uh, a revolution is not a picnic. A revolution is tough business. I think it was Mao who said a revolution is not a dinner party. In the current issue of a Jacobin magazine, uh, has this quote, which I'll run by you. The greatest trick the ruling class ever pulled was to convince the world it didn't exist. Um, I think it's not true that people don't think that there's a ruling class. I think the real trick is that they've convinced people that they can become part of the ruling class. That's the real trick. Look, they publish data you can see annually data on the world's most richest people, the billionaires. They publish data. The presidents and the CEOs meet at gatherings and they are right in your face, David. I don't agree with that quote at all. The great trick is not that they, that they are telling us they don't exist. The great trick is that they are saying that we exist, but you can be a part of us as well if you want. Aspirations. That's the great delusion. The great delusion is, listen, kid, listen, son, daughter, 
you know if you study hard and you pull yourself up you can become like jeff bezos jeff anybody can be like jeff bezos that's the trick david the trick is if trump can be the president you can be the president that's the trick it's not that they don't exist it's that they convince us that we can join the table and there's a problem here because it's a cognitive problem even though we know that there's only five seats at the table we still think we can have one of them even though the odds are against us this sense that i might become part of the ruling class that's the disturbing thing for me not that they don't exist what i fear is that the system is such that it's created the impression that you can also get there and that's what i think is just is debilitating let's move on to uh, china's relation with its populous neighbor and your home country india once the slogan was hindi chini bye bye uh, india china brothers well after a border war between the two countries in 1962 where india lost territory that slogan was quickly forgotten the border today remains heavily militarized in 2020 Just a year ago, uh, there were border clashes in the Siachen glacier area. It's a potential flashpoint for a much wider war, and I don't have to tell you, both countries have nuclear weapons. India, un- unfortunately, has a totally antagonistic relationship with China, and so this has an impact for Asia in general, not just for India and China. um they are the two largest countries they of course share a very great uh, long border but it's divided by a massive mountain chain in the 40s and 50s actually even going back to the 20s between the gomindang and the indian congress party uh, they have had quite warm and rich relations and that the potential of the kind of border solution the potential of you know hindi chini bhai bhai bandung all this stuff was quite great and genuine but i think the border issue was badly handled uh, so you know this is a long term problem a toothache between these countries and why they haven't been able to solve the border issue despite having fought a war i i really cannot tell you i mean the if you look at the issue there are two outstanding regions one is the area in aksai chin which is up near uh, ladakh in the leh area uh, right north of india uh this is the area which the chinese claimed as their territory and india claimed as claims as its territory which the chinese in 1950s built a road they built a road to connect xinjiang province to tibet and that road runs through aksai chin there's no way to build another road so that was essential to their you know of their country on the other side in arunachal pradesh there was a dispute over the tawang region and one or two other disputes I you know there was a lot of scope for land swaps nobody lives up there in aksai chin you know it's a total barren area so there was a lot of scope for land swaps and things like that different deals could have been done they were not done for a host of reasons um and all this was happening by the way during the uprising in tibet in 1958 59 some of the uprisings in chamdo and kham uh, had a cia presence which was run through india and nepal so it's a very entangled story the bottom line is that border deal was not cut that border deal in the same way as the indian pakistan border unfinished border up in kashmir these 
lack of closure of the border question means there's an a saw which anytime there's tension you can open the issue isn't the india china border the issue isn't the border under the scab which is unhealed the issue currently for instance is the narendra modi government as a subordinate ally of the united states putting pressure on china they think that backed by the united states they can make strategic gains against china it's a big error of judgment by the modi government um there's a lot more to be gained with collaboration with the chinese than confrontation i was just going to ask you are there any left revolutionary movements you can talk about the truth is that for the left there is a great problem because the left in the absence of a robust liberal presence in the absence of genuine liberal political forces the left is forced to do the work of liberals we are the we are forced to be out there defending constitutions defending human rights and so on liberals have just sat down on the job it's the left that's defending constitutional norms in brazil for instance you know it's the landless workers movement it's the excluded workers it's the people impacted by dams and so on they are the ones trying to defend the constitution against mr bolsonaro um, where are the liberals in the absence of the liberals the left has to do a lot of that so our own building of revolutionary struggles is constrained by the fact that we are pulled into centrist fights which we have to take up we have to defend constitutions so just in terms of the objective fact of our political life our revolutionary movements don't have the capacity right now to make revolutionary breakthroughs but we are seeing in many places the possibility of elections in chile itself um the leading candidate for the presidential election will be the communist party's daniel hadway a very bright person of palestinian um, origin uh, he was involved in the palestinian youth movement himself uh, daniel is the is the mayor of ricoleta which is a town uh, you know attached to santiago so daniel is is probably going to be in the lead for the presidential uh, you know election that will happen later in the year in chile if there are victories in peru if there is a victory in chile if in kerala the communist movement is reelected if in zambia the socialist party of zambia's fred mbembe wins the election elections are not everything david but they are something and if we can have these people come to power let's see if we can have a different agenda put forward thanks very much for your time Thanks a lot David it's a pleasure That was Vijay Prashad on China the US and the new cold war I talked with him on April 22nd This was part 2 of a special two part program Vijay Prashad is a historian journalist and educator He's the author of many books including Washington Bullets the CIA coups and assassinations This program is produced by Alternative Radio based in Boulder, Colorado. We are independent and in our 35th year. We're supported solely by individuals just like you. To access our complete audio and book catalog, just go to our website alternativeradio.org. Again, our website where we are podcasting alternativeradio.org. To place a credit card order for CDs of today's program, Vijay Prashad on China, the US and the New Cold War, parts 1 and 2, and for Vijay Prashad's book, 
Washington Bullets, the CIA coups and assassinations, just give us a call at 1-800-444-1977. That's 1-800-444-1977. Or you can order online on our website, alternativeradio.org. That's alternativeradio.org. We're offering printed transcripts, PDFs, and MP3s of this program at no charge. Just call us at 1-800-444-1977. Joe Ritchie is our general manager and editor. I'm David Barsamyan. We go out with the music of my guru, Sitar Maestro Debu Chaudhuri, performing Raga Bhairavi. This was the first music of his I heard in India in early 1967, soon after I began studying with him. He taught me so much, not just sitar. I'm forever grateful to him. He passed away in New Delhi on May 1st, a COVID-19 death. He was 85. Just a few days after his death, his son Pratik, a renowned sitarist, also died from COVID. He was only 49. Jay Guru. to the website, alternativeradio.org, alternativeradio.org. We, too, are independent and are supported solely by listeners who make donations, uh, purchase transcripts, MP3s, or CDs of our programs. So we're very much uh, dependent on listeners out there. CJSW, you can't stop the rock, or the pop, or the hip-hop. Well, you get the idea. CJSW 90.9 FM here in Calgary, Alberta, and broadcasting on Treaty 7 Lands. Whoa. 
Pado. Tight money, you tight, tight in your feelings. I'm tight by the whole building with 84 sailors. Never get that money. Run my money. Get it. Worth every penny. You can't take that from me. Uh -huh. Get that money. Run my money. Get it. Worth every penny. You can't take that from me. <laughs> gotta get it. I gotta get it. I gotta get it. Way. Been a hustler, baby, since the first grade, seventh grade. Little island team used to boost for me. Chicks shaking cities and ass. Watch a moose up and move up, make a moose son. She don't care if it's Chris Brown, she'll make a nigga run it. Yeah. Time of vision for these hoes in these lanes. How the fuck you say the shots with that weak ass saying? Blue faces only, no loose change. You a fuck boy, run up, steal your chain. Get into the money, stay in your lane. Money niggas tryna ball like Wayne. If you play on my money, you gon' have to catch that fade. You and your ace, then run back and run that race. Straight to the bank, get to the 